0: Galatians 4, my subject this morning, is walking away from freedom. We've been in Galatians for a while. And this is an interesting topic because we want to remember that the book of Galatians was not written to the people of Galatia. It was written to the church in Galatia. And that's important for us to understand, especially today. Today. The world we experience today, the world that we all move in and out of, is very far away, I think everybody would agree, from the core Christian values that we follow. This world tries to put forth ideas and mindsets and principles that they say will make life better and will be a benefit to everyone. But the reality is, the evidence is, that what gets put forth and what The end result is, is hate and division. Also mistrust for everything and everyone around us. A belief that anything goes. And the way they're able to embrace the mindset that nothing is wrong is by putting forth the idea that nothing is right. Now that's the world, and honestly, they're allowed to do whatever they want. But what gets me sometimes is that even for many Christians, they've chosen a form or a variation of the Christian faith that is void of so much truth. And the reality is, if our Christian faith becomes void of truth, it becomes void of power. Now, it's one thing when the world runs in the opposite direction of the Lord. But when those who once followed him and followed him with diligence and followed him with joy, when those who walked in freedom and in power turn away, many emotions inside of us can arise and rightly should. Hurt, sadness, probably principle of all disbelief. Why would someone walk away from Jesus? Why would someone walk away from his way of life once tasting and seeing that indeed the Lord is good? And as Paul lays out and has throughout this letter, why would someone return and choose bondage over freedom or slavery over freedom? Galatians chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse number 1 now. I say that and the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is master of all, but, he is, but is under guardians and stewards until the appointed time by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Paul, throughout this entire letter, has demonstrated his disbelief. Basically, this major, really? What are you guys doing? In this chapter, in this portion of his letter, he first gives the Galatian church a lesson and an analogy on the topic of slavery. Now, we need to be aware of something. What he is referencing is slavery as it existed and was practiced in the first century. Slaves were identified, were not identified back in Bible days by race. Jews were slaves, but so were Romans or Italians. Jews were of the noble class, so were Romans or Italians. Africans were slaves, but they were also part of the noble class. Simply, the issue of slavery in the first century and for many centuries was not connected whatsoever to one's race. Nearly all of the time, it was two issues. Either your people were conquered in some battle, but the overwhelming majority of the time, it was economics. If you made a business deal that didn't work out and you couldn't pay the money back, You became a slave to the person who you owed the money to. Back in Bible days, there were no bankruptcy laws. You could not file chapter 11 or chapter 13. You became a slave to the person to whom you owed the money. For how long? Until the debt was paid. And the terms of this arrangement of you being a slave were clear it had a clear beginning and a clear end. And it was clear that it was only until the debt was paid. But if the debt was enormous, where it really was not possible for one individual to be able to pay it back on their own in one lifetime, then you got to keep your entire family together because they became slaves as well. There were situations in this time where the person who owed the debt wound up having more life experience, more business experience, more education than to one to whom the debt was owed. Oftentimes the only reason you were a slave master is because you had more money. You were wealthy. And as a result, slaves in the first century often became teachers and scholars. They often supervised work crews of Men who were not slaves. They were caretakers and governesses. Even were put back in business to invest. They may have made one bad decision that put them in debt, but they were still given credit for having a business ability. You remember the parable of the talents, where the master gives his money in different portions to three slaves who were to go and invest and the presumption is either because the people who were investing were better at it than the master or because he didn't have the time this is very different from the sin and the evil that is American slavery or was American slavery which was based purely and solely on race yet the two did have a few things in common slaves were to do as they were told period Slaves were not free to do anything else other than what they were told. And running away from being a slave had serious consequences. In the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4, Paul considers two groups of slaves, those who are slaves because of one of these conditions. And oddly, he adds into the mix minors, those who are under age. Because minors in Bible days could not do as they pleased. Someone else was placed in charge of their overall well-being. Someone else was placed in charge of their education. Someone else, especially as a minor, was given the role basically as a guardian over them until they became of age. And that someone else was often a slave who became a slave by economics. Paul's point in using this analogy is that life under the law did not provide freedom. It did not bring favor with God. What it did bring, according to Paul, according to the Bible, it provided guardianship. It provided instructions. It provided boundaries. For the people of Israel, it provided identity. But what it did not provide was salvation. You are not going to be able to say, I am saved because I kept the rules. That was true then, and it's true now. You're not going to be able to stand before God and read him a resume of all the good things you've done in life. If your name, if your heart isn't covered with the blood of Jesus, it's not going to work. So the law had a purpose. The law had a function. But freedom and salvation were not part of the deal. And then verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Aren't you glad for that? God sent forth his son. Jesus coming to die for the sins of the world provided a bridge by which people could move from being children in bondage, verse 3 says, to being children of God. We are now joint Heirs with Jesus, all because he provided that bridge. Otherwise, we were still under a system of rules. The gospel is good news. It was then. It is now. It's good news for everyone, for Jew and Gentile alike. Adherence to the law could never create favor with God. Following a set of rules alone, can never create that family connection with the Lord. This moves all of us from simply going through motions, simply having rituals, to providing a relationship where his spirit, he says, takes up residence inside of us and gives you and I an awesome privilege, a privilege to be able to approach God and say, Abba, Father. Think of the depth of that benefit. We are no longer on the outside looking in. We have the same rights, the same principles, the same privileges as someone born in the family. Verse 7 says, you are no longer a slave. Oh, church, we are no longer in bondage. And this point applied to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. He says Jews were no longer minors having no freedom, and Gentiles no longer looked uh, looked at as not even being a part of the household. Now, in Jesus, we are all family. This world craves for something that will bring people together and give people a sense of unity and family. I've said it every week in this study. His name is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It's not about works. It's not about how long you've been doing something. And for those who wonder about, well, then, does it matter if I do anything? Trust me, next week we get to chapter 5 where he talks about doing good things. But the basis of our faith, the foundation of what God, gives us this standing before Jesus is not how good we are, is not how much we do, is not how right we get it sometimes because we don't get it right all the time. Christianity is not about a set of rules and rituals that have to be followed. Are there guidelines? Yes. Does God require holiness? Yes. His word is clear on this. But it begins with a family relationship. He is my father. He is my family. I have a relationship with the living and almighty God. The Greek word there for Abba, it literally it just means father, but it was only used in a tender relationship. It was only used in a... De- in a loving relationship you know those times when your children come to you in those tender loving moments like when they want money (laughs) and then instead of hey dad or hey mom or hey you It's, oh, Father, oh, loving and gracious Father. That word, Abba, brought with it tenderness and a loving aspect. But it also proclaimed dependence. There will never be a moment on this planet for as long as any of us live that we don't need God. We need him every moment of every day, for every breath, in every situation. I am never going to be independent of my heavenly father. I need his power. I need his strength. I need his presence. I need him each and every moment. That's the gospel that Paul was trying to bring to the churches at Galatia. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which were by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and And beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you. Lest I have labored for you in vain. He's basically saying you were lost. You were without hope. Completely without eternal hope. And you did not know God. And now you know God. And even better than you know God... God knows you. And yet you're turning away. You see, in many of the pagan religions of that time and that area, they observed ritual days and they honored special days, performing specific practices and embracing, and embracing seasonal ceremonies. Then they came to Jesus. But now they're turning away from that from being justified by God purely by faith, now they want to turn as they're being pressured to another religious system that is based on certain practices, certain ceremonies, and honoring certain seasons. How is it that suddenly Jesus' atonement became insufficient? When did Jesus dying on the cross to wash away your sins need help? It didn't need help then. It doesn't need help now. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why is the sacrifice become not enough? Paul doesn't get it. He can't understand why they would, when he found them, they were in a religious system that honored certain days, that honored certain practices, that this was the way in which you found favor with whatever God you were worshiping. Then they were set free. Then they were given joy that was based purely on faith. And now because of pressure, they're looking to embrace a system that requires certain days and certain ceremonies and certain practices. What happened? Paul's incredulous. Why would anybody walk away from the life Jesus gives? And again, remember, this letter is not to the people of Galatia. It's to the church or the churches. It's the Christians. Now, I want to be sensitive. There are those Christians who have been, who have had really painful experiences in church. And that's the reality of it. There are Christians who have been deeply wounded by other believers there are Christians who have had prayers not answered and dealt with health that didn't get better it got worse there are Christians who have had prayers not answered and had to deal with severe loss bottom line our Christian walk our commitment to Jesus is not something based on how we feel. Because we can all feel awesome. We come to church on Sunday, and we feel great. We have a meal together, and we feel awesome. And then, for some reason, God decided to have Monday follow Sunday. (laughs) Except this week, Monday is a holiday. So Tuesday follows Sunday. If my faith, if my commitment were based on how I felt, I'd be as shallow as most of the people in the world around me who don't follow Jesus. But my commitment to him is based on a faith in what he did, not necessarily on any given day how I feel about it. Is the Christian life all roses? Well, that depends. If you want to include the thorns, then maybe. But no, it's not all fun and games. I get real annoyed when I hear someone say, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. First of all, Christians shouldn't lie. <laughs> and that's a lie. In fact, Depending on your family dynamic, you may have increased your problems exponentially by coming to Jesus. But coming to Jesus isn't about just sunny days, it's about knowing that He's there even on the rainy days, that He's there even when things don't make any sense, that He's there even when I'm hurting that he's there even when people who say they love the Lord and they may indeed love the Lord hurt me. To do our Christian faith based on feelings is to sell ourselves back to slavery because we're slaves to our feelings. We pray for this world, that God would open the eyes of the blind. We pray for our country, that God would turn the hearts of many to him. We pray for those who once walked with him and did so with such joy and such power and such desire that they could see the only place to know real joy and know it again, the only place to experience strength and hope, the only place to find peace that passes all understanding Church, his name is Jesus. But, Pastor, where was God when, and you can fill in the blank, where was God when I lost my job? Where was God when my friend became ill? Where was God when my child passed away? Where was God in all these situations? Again, I want to be sensitive. But we need to understand that God has given us so much. He's given us his son. He's washed our sins away. He's given us a path to eternal life. To have a relationship with God that is based on I do this and then you do this for me, that would place us in a position of having at times God owe me something. You know, after thinking about it, God, I've been in church like 852 Sundays in a row. Certainly, you owe me one. You know, God, I've been paying my tithes, and I've been nice to people. Even that coworker of mine who's really annoying I know none of you have coworkers that are annoying. I've been nice to them, even though in my mind I just want to smash them all over the office. But I didn't. So, God, you owe me. We'll talk about the attitudes of the heart sometime later this fall. (laughs) Let's make something clear. God is never in debt to me. He is never in debt to me. I owe him everything. I owe him my life. I owe him every ounce of breath that emanates from within me. This is not, I didn't come to Jesus to make a deal. Lord, I'll come to you, but here's my conditions. No. No. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. The only place for joy. The only place for strength. And yet the reality is all of us have family members or friends, dear close friends. Many of which may have brought us closer to faith or brought us to the Lord. And now they're not where they need to be. They're not where they should be. Paul would scratch his head, too, because it's not about the way life turns out. I think we really have this mindset, and I'll be specific, in the American church that life is about how much stuff you have. What's the old saying? I never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You're not going to take it with you. It's going to be left here for other people to argue over. But he came into our hearts and set us free so that we could live free. Live free from the bondage of all kinds of things. Live free from even the pressures of our own unforgiveness. How many Christians deal with the fact that they can forgive other people, but they can't forgive themselves? I should have been a better this, I should have been a better that, I should have been a better father, a better husband, a better mother, a better wife, a better friend, a better sister, a better brother, a better Christian. We need to realize that as far as walking your Christian life, perfection was never on the table. It was never on the table. Well, I could have been better. That is always going to be true. In fact, if there's one thing that's true and unifying of all, of all mankind, maybe it should be on every tombstone, I could have done better. Yes, you could have. That, but you didn't, be, and that's why we needed Jesus. Because I couldn't do better. But Jesus didn't require me to do better. He, he required me to bow my knee to better, to Jesus, to him, to embrace my heavenly father, to embrace a relationship that I can crawl up into his arms and say, Abba, father, a loving family relationship. You know, our families are precious to us. And if we're honest, they're also at times the source of the most annoyance that anybody can ever know. You don't have to say amen. I know it's true. But family is what God wants. He wants family. Sons and daughters. That's why it's got to be an individual relationship that you have with Jesus. Because, and I believe it with all my heart, God has no grandchildren only children. No one's going to get into heaven by saying, well, you know who my mom was? She was in church every Sunday. Yeah, but what about you? It's got to be you who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. Paul couldn't understand why they were leaving. One system of rules for another, when in between was a joy unspeakable, a freedom that only Jesus can give. And yet they were turning away from that. Paul says, what, did I work and do nothing among you? This is what we need to understand. Now, yeah. We like to have principles and boundaries, and we need things like laws and, and rules to be able to provide order and sense. And I, I'm not denying all that, and Paul won't either in chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians. But this isn't about how we keep things in order. This is about your individual relationship with God, and it's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how amazing you are. It's not based on how well you dress. It's not based on any of those outward things. What did Samuel say to the king? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. That's how to get favor with him. That's how to walk in freedom and not away from it. Stand with me, please.